This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by SAS. SAS is the leader in analytics. Through innovative software and services, SAS empowers and inspires customers around the world to transform data into intelligence. SAS gives you the power to know. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Friday, December 7th, The Washington Post brought together top government officials, health policy experts, patient advocates, and medical professionals for a series of discussions about the opioid crisis. Speakers discussed new proposals aimed at combating the epidemic, provided solutions for addressing disparities in access to treatment, and examined the impact of drugs on communities throughout the country. In this segment, substance abuse experts discuss treatment models aimed at minimizing the harmful effects of drug use, including the placement of controversial safe injection sites in select cities across the country. Let's listen. Again, everyone, um, we are uh, here now, our our third panel is on harm reduction. We are very honored to have with us Alex Kral, a distinguished fellow at RTI International, and David Murray, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he co-directs the Center for Substance Abuse Policy. Um, And Alex, harm reduction, it's a term, it gets thrown around in the whole opioid discussion. Could you start us off by telling us what does it mean exactly, what are the elements of harm reduction, and which ones are you in favor of? Yeah, you know, harm reduction is essentially just uh, a set of practical strategies that are designed to reduce the harms of drug use. Um, And so uh, you might know them as anything from drug treatment programs like medically assisted treatment programs to syringe access programs, uh, overdose prevention sites, uh, you know, any, any of these kinds of programs that are essentially trying to minimize the harms. uh, Syringe access, we mean needle exchanges. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, and um, fentanyl strips, uh, allowing people to, who use uh, drugs to test their, their drugs before they, before they consume them. Yep. All of these things. So there's a spectrum in the harm reduction. Okay, there are a number of them that you are in favor of. Tell us which ones and why. Um, well, you know, a, as a researcher, there's a, there's a number of harm reduction strategies that I've been evaluating over the years. I've spent the last 25 years uh, doing research in the community um, and evaluating programs that are already being implemented in the communities. Um, that includes needle exchange programs, as you, as you pointed out. Um, that has also included fentanyl test strips uh, um, as well. Uh, you know, medically assisted treatment, uh, you know, any of these, supervised consumption sites, uh, all, all of these are, are programs that are evaluated and, uh, at this point, yeah. And what does the research tell us? Uh, well, you know, I think what, what, what the research tells us in the U.S. is that syringe access programs have been incredibly helpful uh, to reduce uh, infectious diseases like HIV, uh, viral hepatitis, and also link people to other services. I think that's something that was talked a lot about in the last panel as well, is that they're, they're really a good access point for people to other kinds of, uh, you know, to, me- to see doctors, to, to mental health, uh, to, you know, a whole host of, of services um, that we've seen. 
um, you know, the supervised uh, consumption sites. There's a lot of data from uh, around the world, from Canada, from Europe, from Australia, uh, where these sites have been for the last 30 years that are showing that they help reduce overdose deaths, uh, they reduce HIV, hepatitis C, um, they facilitate people getting into medical assisted treatment, um, and um, they also reduce uh, some of the sort of nuisance issues in the neighborhood. If, mm. uh, they, they reduce public injection, mm. they reduce needles in the streets, um, and, um, and, and so this both, you know, there's both help uh, from, from the people who go there, but also it seems to help the communities as well. Um, super folks who don't know supervised consumption sites are places where users can bring the drugs that they obtain on the street illegally and uh, use them in a, in a supervised setting. Uh, the people who are watching have naloxone in case there's an overdose. They have oxygen in case there's an overdose. And they probably are among the more controversial aspects of, of harm reduction. So David, mm -hmm. uh, simply put, uh, harm reduction tries to keep people alive while they are using and before they can access or get into treatment. What could possibly be wrong with that? I'm skeptical of the findings and I worry that we're neglecting one of the critical tools here. Uh, probably the single most effective overall strategic understanding of substance abuse disorders has to address the supply, the availability, the normative acceptability of their continued use. If you're not reducing the supply and availability, you're not enabling people to have incentives to move into treatment. Uh, of the people who are in need of substance abuse disorder treatment, more than 90% are not seeking it. They're in denial. How do we incentivize them to seek treatment and get into recovery from the disease of addiction if we're enabling them to continue to use by setting up facilities that uh, enhance their capacity to get access, that removes the criminal justice system from its presence there. We don't avail ourselves of the tools that drug courts could bring to bear. We don't avail ourselves of the efforts to reduce the sheer availability and supply of fentanyl, for instance, from China, which we're recently working on. And the last thing I suppose is this concern. There is both a social policy dimension to this notion that the state or the society becomes the enabler and sustainer of continued drug use by enabling the injection of, of either illicit heroin or in some instances, such as in Canada, where the state provides the heroin. And so they make sure that it's clean and pharmaceutical grade. But what you're doing is you're enabling a lifetime of addiction. These drugs are themselves not safe. Over time, the impact on the user who could be moved into recovery, who could be brought home and into our families and lives again, is sustained in exposure to things that undermine their immune system, things that reduce their mental capacity, things that threaten their lives. They're not safe even when they're injected with somebody supervising standing by. David, are we enabling them or were they going to use those drugs anyway and we're just providing them with a clean place and a healthy place to do it? A clean and healthy place to inject a poison is somewhat problematic from a public health point of view. What you actually see when you study these facilities is that they're not giving you the full story. They're methodologically a little unsound. There's huge attrition problems with studying these populations. There are huge difficulties with interpreting what is the goal and what is the measure before we say injection facilities work. What we really see, <clears throat> excuse me, in extremely problematic populations, such as in Vancouver, 25% of the people who are seriously participating here are indigenous, by the way, and they're poly drug abusers. They're mixed substance disorders here. People are simultaneously losing, using 
high potency marijuana, methamphetamine, cocaine, crack cocaine, and the opioids. You can't simply address the opioids with a naloxone recovery and think that you have a solution to the problem. This is more of a dodge. Naloxone is extremely important. It can save a life in the immediate context. It must be an occasion to try to get somebody to rescue operation, to get them then into treatment and recovery. Well, perhaps the treatment's not available. In this country, it's very difficult. The majority of people are not pursuing and trying to find the treatment that is available, certainly expand treatment. As best we can, make that outreach available. But you see how counterproductive it is to say, you can either get into recovery and treatment, the hard choice, you can go on to medication-assisted therapy where you're taking buprenorphine, which can sustain you, or you can just give up and we can provide you with a clean facility where you can continue to get illicit heroin. Now, let's, let's be serious about this. There's very low participation rates of the available population that is at risk for substance abuse disorder. The people who actually show up and show up consistently at the injection facilities is actually very small. And unfortunately, they're not consistent users. How much are we really protecting them and saving them? They say, well, overdoses in the facility are not found because someone's standing by with a naloxone. Yes, but what happens, these people continue to use on the street with illicit heroin. Dealers gather in that area because law enforcement has been told to disattend to the presence of heroin in that circumstance. You're enabling and sustaining a market of illicit heroin where the users who participate in the facility continue to expose themselves to HIV, to hepatitis, and continue to expose themselves to the risk of overdose when the facilities are no longer used or available or closed. They continue this behavior. You haven't changed their behavior about that, towards Alex? recovery. How about that? Are we enabling drug use through supervised uh, consumption sites? Uh, no, the data does not show that you're enabling it. Uh, it's not increasing the amounts of people who are using it. The people don't use more who go to these sites, and so it's not enabling drug use in that way. What, what, what the data shows is that these sites actually do facilitate. This is what we actually need is you need a way to get people to treatment. And, and, and as, as Dr. Murray says, it, it's tough. Not everybody wants to go to treatment or, 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 or can do that, sure. like you were saying as yeah. well. And so this is an access point, just like syringe exchange programs are an access point. So it's a place where you can actually start that conversation, talk to somebody and say, hey, are you maybe interested in something like this? Because it takes time. And what we've seen is this is a recurring, you you know, you know, opioids. It, it, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing to 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 stop using. Uh, people go to treatment and they might start using again. It's a recurring thing, um, and so we need somewhere in the community for people to actually talk. That's that's you know free of the stigma about about them even coming there, um, and 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 they feel like they're safe and they can actually you know start thinking about ways um, that they can change you know behaviors in their lives that they that they'd like to change. Now, British Columbia, which I. I dare say probably has more uh, of these kinds of places than any other part of the world. Uh, there's, a, there's quite a few uh, supervised con consumption sites. Still has an overdose problem. So are we not getting people from these sites to treatment? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, I've seen some misconceptions about that in the media lately as well. And so what you had was um, the, the main site in Vancouver, Insight, uh, opened in 2003. That's a long time ago now, that's 15 years ago. Um, and they did, uh, you know, really incredible valuations there. They published in the top medical journals, uh, New Journal of Medicine, British Medical Journal, all these top journals. Um, and, and, and essentially, 
you know, what they found at that point was that it did reduce overdoses hugely at the time, right? But then what's happened in the last three, or four, three years or so is that we have this new fentanyl epidemic, right? And this fentanyl epidemic has come to Vancouver, unfortunately, just like it's come to all the United States at this point, right? Um, and so you've got increases in overdoses in Vancouver, you know, that, because of that same epidemic that we're dealing with here. Um, the site is still reducing, you know, reducing uh, mortality by saving all the people who are actually in. I, mean, I think they actually save about six people a day. So it would have been site, a lot, you know. once fentanyl arrived, yeah. it would have been a lot worse than what we're seeing had it not been for these sites. Exactly, exactly. Okay. David? I disagree. I think that they have been coincident, these sites and harm reduction activities, with the very catastrophic epidemic that we have seen. They've gone hand in hand. I'm not saying it's causal, but they are clearly related. In the last eight years of the Obama administration, and I worked under the Bush administration, I worked under the Obama administration, I served in both, I saw what happened in terms of policy, we've seen a retreat from a strategic understanding of the role of supply in trying to inhibit the availability and to change the norms where people can be moved into recovery effectively. A retreat from that that is exactly coincident with a catastrophic rise from 2010 until now of the opioid overdose epidemic. Same thing in British Columbia, 80% year over year rise of overdose deaths because they continue to use and expose to a highly dangerous substance that is lethal. And unfortunately, we're discovering further naloxone is refractory that is, the fentanyl that they're taking is so powerful, so overwhelming, that many times it requires multiple doses to recover. If the, fent if the naloxone is not being made available for overdose recovery in the hands of supervised professionals, in the hands of EMTs or law enforcement or ideally medical personnel, you're missing the opportunity to move these people to recovery. You may be saving a life, but what you're really deferring, doing is deferring the overdose that will subsequently still be a risk for them when they have recovered. There must be more strategic ways of changing that dynamic, changing the behavior, enabling entry into treatment and retention in treatment. And the studies that seem to show that safe injection facilities, quote, work, are really very modest in terms of what their goals are. They say compared to, say, methadone, there's longer retention in treatment if we give them actual heroin itself. That's a very modest goal. They're not moving people towards recovery. They say, well, there are access points where you can get people into treatment. You actually study how many referrals into treatment are actually successfully completed in these facilities. Virtually never. What you get is sometimes a detox referral. You do not actually get movement of people off the streets into recovery. And Al again, the polydrug acts. One last thing, this mm -hmm. really isn't critical. It's polydrug use. We have medication-assisted therapy for opioids. We do not have medication-assisted therapy for methamphetamine, for cocaine. These kill. And the comeback of cocaine in, out of South America into the United States scene in the last three years has been extraordinary. It's rising steeply year over year. We're now losing 10 or 1,000 more people a year to cocaine overdoses. There's no medication-assisted therapy there. There's no solution with a safe injection facility where someone stands by with naloxone for methamphetamine injection, for cocaine injection. And when they're combining that with the opioids, the lethality will continue. This is a substance abuse disorder that we have been enabling further by the legalized access of recreational marijuana at high potency at a young age, okay. which is setting the David, foundation for this. Thanks. Alex, you seemed like you wanted to respond. 
well, I think there's, um, there's a lot to respond to there, honestly. Um, I think in terms of naloxone, I think we heard earlier from the Surgeon General um, that we need to not just have naloxone in the hands of EMTs, uh, of, of law enforcement, um, because they might not get there in time, right? They, it, like he said, I think four or five minutes, you, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tall order, especially in rural areas, especially right. in places uh, not, not in the middle of the city. Um, and so we do need naloxone, I think, in the hands of, of uh, really of every American, honestly, uh, as much as we can. It's, it's inexpensive. Uh, there's no risks associated with it. Um, you know, we were the first people to actually evaluate uh, com uh, community-based uh, naloxone back in 2001. Um, we, we conducted the first pilot study of this. And I think that's, that's the thing I think we need to think about here is, is we've seen over the, over the years, um, we've seen, you know, with the HIV epidemic, that was a huge problem. We needed to think about new solutions at the time. We couldn't just say, okay, let's stop drug use. Uh, I think that's, we did a lot of supply side uh, at, at that time, and that didn't change that. It didn't change the oh, HIV yeah. epidemic. So that's what, why we came up so with needle exchanges, needle exchange naloxone distribution. That, which is something that came from the community. The community thought of this thing. It was evaluated by researchers. And then once it was shown to be effective over time, then governments decided, okay, this is something we need, we need to fund and we need to, we need to, we need to do. The same and now thing fentanyl, strips. The fentanyl same, strips is happening now. Right. right. The same thing was true as naloxone, right? So that, that's something that came from, from, from Dan Big in Chicago, really a, a hero, frankly, um, who, who, who said, you know what, we need to give this to the people. Um, so he, in the late 90s, he's the one who, who, started, who started training people in doing that. And then we did the research on that to show that it actually works. And then now it's, it's a pillar of the current administration. You know, it's very important. So we need to think about this in terms of needing some of these innovative strategies, allowing them to happen as, as sort of social experiments, really. If they work, then we need to, you know, that's, that's how we're going to stem and not sit here with 70,000 uh, Americans uh, dying in, in, in the next year, just like, as they did last year. David, yep. the law that makes supervised consumption sites illegal in the United States was passed in the 1980s. It was mostly aimed at crack houses. It was a way to try to keep people from opening crack houses or using drugs in crack houses. I don't think it was ever intended to keep volunteers and medical professionals from setting up a site like you guys have been describing to keep people alive before they go into treatment. Why do we need this law? Why, why don't we try to do something about that so that, so that people can do pilot projects uh, and not be in violation of federal law. I'm not opposed to using naloxone, by the way. I mean, this is an important tool and it right. has an adventure capacity. It actually does save a life where possible and it should be under medical supervision, and ideally, because you only have a few minutes to get a person into recovery and ideally a transition to treatment and then they're still at risk again. Nonetheless, it is not a solution. It's not a strategic solution. Right. It's a we, dodge. We understand. In no other disease do we take a person and let them run with the disease until they finally collapse in the street and then say, oh, we must intervene here. We need a strategic solution that works more broadly. And let me make sure this is clear to people. We usually dismiss the notion that supply reduction can have a strategic effect. No one who served in the White House office as I did during the years when we cracked down on, of all things, cocaine and made major dramatic international changes in the availability and supplies. 75% reduction in the availability of cocaine coming out of Colombia that had massive and beneficial effects on U.S. streets. 
David, recovery the, was strong. The federal law. Overdose laws, overdose deaths de decreased, and the reduction in supply has strategic impact. The federal law, if you can change it if you want to, say, for instance, this is a Schedule One substance which is illicit to have mm -hmm. under federal law, and that's why you cannot bring illicit heroin into a facility and inject without being in violation of federal law. I heard uh, Attorney, Assistant Attorney General Rod Rosenstein just suggest that this needs to be perhaps addressed, but you cannot simply move heroin around with the presumption that you're immune or have impunity from the legal system without untoward and unintended consequences well, you can facilitating you, you greater can, heroin availability for those who use illicitly. You can if you do as they do in Vancouver where the government supplies uh, yes, pharmaceutical grade heroin yes. and for users, I went up there and toured that site and spoke yeah. to people, for users that has been uh, a godsend because they can hold a job, because they can oh, wait, no. pay their rent, because they're not committing crime to get money for drugs. You could actually do that. Well, we've seen that. I visited Insight in 2003 and then saw it again when we were in office. We went to Amsterdam. We saw such facilities before. There's a little bit of an illusion about what happens here. A heroin injector is a, a hardcore, long-term, chronic heroin injector is injecting multiple times a day. Basically, they're in a daycare facility receiving government heroin paid for by taxpayers, and that really questions and constrains their citizenship. How free is this person who's now dependent on heroin that the society is supplying? You say, well, they're good at job. Well, they're, they're multiplying multiple times a day they're having to inject, and they're still at risk from the drug itself. Under this circumstance, that seems to me to be not be a free citizen. That seems to be a citizen on a leash. Do these people, are they enabled to drive school buses? to participate in flying an aircraft, to have professional lives? Well, no, because they're dependent and they're basically disabled under the drug use that we're trying to get them free from. But Is this the policy you would want for your sister, for your son, for your own family members, that they are being warehoused effectively somewhere by giving government-sponsored heroin so as to keep them from disrupting the local neighborhood? No, this they does go not out, seem they go to out into the a strategic solution. They go out into the community and hold other kinds of jobs, yes, they're not driving buses. But I'm feeling a lot of stigma attached to all the things you're saying there. I mean, I think that people who are on uh, various medications, whether that be methadone, whether that be buprenorphine, or there, there's all kinds of medications that people are on, and I don't think that it sort of warehouses them in any kind of way. I think, you know, what the research shows is that this actually improves their lives, right? And so, and it does reduce their likelihood of dying. It does reduce their likelihood of getting infectious diseases, uh, you know, overdosing, all, all these various things. And so I, I don't think we can, we can just say, well, you know what, that's a problem. They just got to sit here in their warehouse in this sort of way. I, I think we have to deal with people in the community and, and think about the, the person on the street, um, think about people in their <clears> homes, <throat> and, and how can we actually improve um, their lives in some sort of way? And, and, mm -hmm. and some of these harm reduction strategies, whether they be overdose prevention sites, uh, you know, or, 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 or safe injection sites, or whether they be needle exchange or naloxone, uh, fentanyl test strips, uh, th there's a lot of different ways that we now know um, that are solutions to actually improve the lives of, of, of folks. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what the science, that's what the science shows. No, I completely agree with you with regard to buprenorphine. That is a proper and is a way of maintenance. And as long as it has the goal of recovery, it seems to me to be very viable and the data are good on buprenorphine. I was talking with warehousing as a reference to the government supplying pharmaceutical grade heroin as the treatment for heroin disorder. That seems to me to be a very different equation. All right, I'm going to ask you guys, and, and it's given our, our time, it's going to have to be a very brief answer. Uh, yes or no? and maybe a few seconds of explanation. Is someone going to open a supervised inve injection site 
in the United States and test that law and test the Justice Department's promise that they will crack down on it? Yes or no? We've got 70,000 people who died last year. I think we need to look at innovative solutions uh, to see if they work. We can't be afraid of starting something just to try it at least. So yeah, I do think that there's going to be cities. There are several cities that have said they're going to try to do this. Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, Seattle. And they'll, uh, they'll provoke a court and, test, and presumably. I think, um, you know, I don't know about that part. But I think we need to test them to see, do they work? Do they work here? Or is that good for these communities or not? David? This is not a good public health solution. I think it probably will be tried somewhere. This is a social engineering experiment. We have better solutions, better strategic capacities to get these people into recovery and to liberate them from their own disorder and get them home again. And I think we should prefer those strategies before we move to injection facilities that we maintain. Thank you. Thank you guys for this very vigorous debate. That's, uh, we're out of time. Uh, Alex Kral, David Murray, um, really interesting thoughts on harm, rejection, uh, harm reduction. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.